are listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome to part two of this very special edition of Nightlight, in which we're listening to a selection of Charles Spurgeon's meditations on the Easter story, taken from his morning and evening daily devotionals. The format of this show will be the same as part one, with a minute of instrumental music between the readings, as well as a devotional song at the beginning, middle and end of the program. On the first show, the meditations covered the events in the Garden of Gethsemane and the trial of Jesus. Part two, we focus on Spurgeon's insights into the crucifixion and resurrection. Let's start, though, with this classic hymn, beautifully sung by Christy Gibson. Thank you. 
And there followed him a great company of people, and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. Amid the rabble rout which hounded the Redeemer to his doom, there were some gracious souls whose bitter anguish sought vent in wailing and lamentations, fit music to accompany that march of woe. When my soul can, in imagination, see the Saviour bearing his cross to Calvary, she joins the godly women and weeps with them. For indeed there is true cause for grief, cause lying deeper than those mourning women thought. They bewailed innocence maltreated, goodness persecuted, love bleeding, meekness about to die. But my heart has a deeper and more bitter cause to mourn. My sins were the scourges which lacerated those blessed shoulders and crowned with thorn those bleeding brows. My sins cried, crucify him, crucify him, and laid the cross upon his gracious shoulders. His being led forth to die is sorrow enough for one eternity, but my having been his murderer, is more, infinitely more grief than one poor fountain of tears can express. Why those women loved and wept, it were not hard to guess. But they could not have had greater reasons for love and grief than my heart has. Nain's widow saw her son restored, but I myself have been raised to newness of life, Peter's wife's mother was cured of the fever, but I of the greater plague of sin. Out of Magdalene seven devils were cast, but a whole legion out of me. Mary and Martha were favored with visits, but he dwells with me. His mother bare his body, but he is formed in me the hope of glory. In nothing behind the holy women in debt, let me not be behind him in gratitude or sorrow. Love and grief my heart dividing, with my tears his feet I'll lave, constant still in heart abiding. Weep for him who died to save. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? Psalm 4 verse 2 An instructive writer has made a mournful list of the honors which the blinded people of Israel awarded to their long-expected king. 1. 
they gave him a procession of honor, in which Roman legionnaires, Jewish priests, men and women took a part, he himself bearing his cross. This is the triumph which the world awards to him who comes to overthrow man's direst foes. Derisive shouts are his only acclamations, and cruel taunts his only paeans of praise. 2. They presented him with the wine of honor. Instead of a golden cup of generous wine, they offered him the criminal's stupefying death draught, which he refused, because he would preserve an uninjured taste wherewith to the taste of death. And afterwards, when he cried, I thirst, they gave him vinegar mixed with gall, thrust to his mouth upon a sponge. Oh, wretched, detestable inhospitality to the king's son. 3. He was provided with a guard of honor, who showed their esteem of him by gambling over his garments, which they had seized as their booty. Such was the bodyguard of the adored of heaven, a quaternion of brutal gamblers. 4. A throne of honor was found for him upon the bloody tree. No easier place of rest would rebel men yield to their liege lord. The cross was, in fact, the full expression of the world's feeling towards him. There they seemed to say, Thou Son of God, this is the manner in which God himself should be treated could we reach him. 5. The title of honor was nominally King of the Jews, but that the blinded nation distinctly repudiated and really called him King of Thieves by preferring Barabbas and by placing Jesus in the place of the highest shame between two thieves. His glory was thus in all things turned into shame by the sons of men, but it shall yet gladden the eyes of saints and angels, world without end. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Psalm 22, verse 14. Did earth or heaven ever behold a sadder spectacle of woe? 
In soul and body, our Lord felt himself to be weak as water poured upon the ground. The placing of the cross in its socket had shaken him with great violence, had strained all the ligaments, pained every nerve, and more or less dislocated all his bones. Burdened with his own weight, the august sufferer felt the strain increasing every moment of those six long hours. His sense of faintness and general weakness were overpowering, while to his own consciousness he became nothing but a mass of misery and swooning sickness. When Daniel saw the great vision, he thus describes his sensations, There remained no strength in me, for my vigor was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. How much more faint must have been our greater prophet when he saw the dread vision of the wrath of God and felt it in his own soul? To us, sensations such as our Lord endured would have been insupportable and kind unconsciousness would have come to our rescue. But in his case, he was wounded and felt the sword. He drained the cup and tasted every drop. O King of Grief, a title strange yet true to thee of all kings only due. O King of Wounds, how shall I grieve for thee, who in all grief preventest me. As we kneel before our now ascended Saviour's throne, let us remember well the way by which he prepared it as a throne of grace for us. Let us in spirit drink of his cup, that we may be strengthened for our hour of heaviness whenever it may come. In his natural body every member suffered, and so must it be in the spiritual. But as out of all his griefs and woes, his body came forth uninjured to glory and power, even so shall his mystical body come through the furnace with not so much as the smell of fire upon it. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. Psalm 22 verse 14 Our blessed Lord experienced a terrible sinking and melting of soul. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear? Deep depression of spirit 
is the most grievous of all trials. All besides is as nothing. Well might the suffering Saviour cry to his God, Be not far from me. For above all other seasons, a man needs his God when his heart is melted within him because of heaviness. Believer, come near the cross this morning and humbly adore the King of glory as having once been brought far lower in mental distress and inward anguish than any one among us and mark his fitness to become a faithful high priest who can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Especially let those of us whose sadness springs directly from the withdrawal of a present sense of our Father's love enter into near and intimate communion with Jesus. Let us not give way to despair, since through this dark room the Master has passed before us, our souls may sometimes long and faint and thirst even to anguish to behold the light of the Lord's countenance. At such times, let us stay ourselves with the sweet fact of the sympathy of our great high priest. Our drops of sorrow may well be forgotten in the ocean of his griefs, but how high ought our love to rise! Come in, O strong and deep love of Jesus, like the sea at the flood in spring tides. Cover all my powers, drown all my sins, wash out all my cares, lift up my earth-bound soul and float it right up to my Lord's feet. And there let me lie, a poor broken shell, washed up by his love having no virtue or value, and only venturing to whisper to him that if he will put his ear to me, he will hear within my heart faint echoes of the vast waves of his own love, which have brought me where it is my delight to lie, even at his feet forever.
All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. Psalm 22, verse 7. Mockery was a great ingredient in our Lord's woe. Judas mocked him in the garden. The chief priests and scribes laughed him to scorn. Herod set him at naught. The servants and the soldiers jeered at him, and brutality insulted him. Pilate and his guards ridiculed his royalty. And on the tree, all sorts of horrid jests and hideous taunts were hurled at him. Ridicule is always hard to bear. But when we are in intense pain, it is so heartless, so cruel, that it cuts us to the quick. Imagine the Saviour crucified, racked with anguish far beyond all mortal guess. And then picture that motley multitude, all wagging their heads or thrusting out the lip in bitterest contempt of one poor suffering victim. Surely there must have been something more in the crucified one than they could see, or else such a great and mingled crowd would not unanimously have honoured him with such contempt. Was it not evil, confessing, in the very moment of its greatest apparent triumph, that after all it could do no more than mock at that victorious goodness which was then reigning on the cross? O Jesus, despised and rejected of men, how couldst thou die for men who treated thee so ill? Herein is love amazing, love divine, yea, love beyond degree. We too have despised thee in the days of our unregeneracy, and even since our new birth we have set the world on high in our hearts, and yet thou bleedest to heal our wounds and diest to give us life. Oh, that we could set thee on a glorious high throne in all men's hearts. We would ring out thy praises over land and sea till men should as universally adore as once they did unanimously reject. Thy creatures wrong thee, O thou sovereign good. Thou art not loved, because not understood. This grieves me most, that vain pursuits beguile ungrateful men, regardless of thy smile.
and you're listening to part two of a special Easter edition of Nightlight. And I'm really enjoying sharing with you these deep, very poetic and profound insights into the Easter story from the pen of Charles Spurgeon. The instrumentals, once again, are from Michael Dooley. Well, let's take a break for another song from Christy Gibson, and then we'll be back with the last part of this year's special Easter edition of Nightlight. Ooh. 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. We here behold the Saviour in the depth of his sorrows. No other place so well shows the griefs of Christ as Calvary, and no other moment at Calvary is so full of agony as that in which his cry rends the air, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At this moment, physical weakness was united with acute mental torture from the shame and ignominy through which he had to pass, and to make his grief culminate with emphasis, he suffered spiritual agony surpassing all expression, resulting from the departure of his father's presence. This was the black midnight of his horror. Then it was that he descended the abyss of suffering. No man can enter into the full meaning of these words. Some of us think at times we could cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There are seasons when the brightness of our Father's smile is eclipsed by clouds and darkness. But let us remember that God never does really forsake us. It is only a seeming forsaking with us. But in Christ's case, it was a real forsaking. We grieve at a little withdrawal of our Father's love, but the real turning away of God's face from His Son, who shall calculate how deep the agony which it caused Him? In our case, our cry is often dictated by unbelief. In His case, it was the utterance of a dreadful fact, for God had really turned away from Him for a season. O thou poor distressed soul, who once lived in the sunshine of God's face, but art now in darkness, remember that he has not really forsaken thee. God in the clouds is as much our God as when he shines forth in all the luster of his grace. But since even the thought that he has forsaken us gives us agony, what must the woe of the Saviour have been when he exclaimed, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. Standing at the foot of the cross, we see hands and feet and side, all distilling crimson streams of precious blood. It is precious because of its redeeming and atoning efficacy. By it the sins of Christ's people are atoned for. 
They are redeemed from under the law. They are reconciled to God, made one with Him. Christ's blood is also precious in its cleansing power. It cleanseth from all sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Through Jesus' blood, there is not a spot left upon any believer. No wrinkle nor any such thing remains. O precious blood, which makes us clean, removing the stains of abundant iniquity, and permitting us to stand accepted in the Beloved, notwithstanding the many ways in which we have rebelled against our God. The blood of Christ is likewise precious in its preserving power. We are safe from the destroying angel under the sprinkled blood. Remember, it is God's seeing the blood which is the true reason for our being spared. Here is comfort for us when the eye of faith is dim, for God's eye is still the same. The blood of Christ is precious also in its sanctifying influence. The same blood which justifies by taking away sin does in its after-action quicken the new nature and lead it onward to subdue sin and to follow out the commands of God. There is no motive for holiness so great as that which streams from the veins of Jesus. And precious, unspeakably precious, is this blood because it has an overcoming power. It is written, they overcame through the blood of the Lamb. How could they do otherwise? He who fights with the precious blood of Jesus fights with a weapon which cannot know defeat, the blood of Jesus. Sin dies at its presence. Death ceases to be death. Heaven's gates are opened. The blood of Jesus. We shall march on conquering and to conquer so long as we can trust its power. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. No mean miracle was wrought in the rending of so strong and thick a veil. But it was not intended merely as a display of power. Many lessons were herein taught us. 
The old lore of ordinances was put away, and like a worn-out vesture, rent and laid aside. When Jesus died, the sacrifices were all finished, because all were fulfilled in him. And therefore, the place of their presentation was marked with an evident token of decay. That rent also revealed all the hidden things of the old dispensation. The mercy seat could now be seen, and the glory of God gleamed forth above it. By the death of our Lord Jesus, we have a clear revelation of God, for he was not as Moses who put a veil over his face. Life and immortality are now brought to light, and things which have been hidden since the foundation of the world are manifest in him. The annual ceremony of atonement was thus abolished. The atoning blood, which was once every year sprinkled within the veil, was now offered once and for all by the high priest, and therefore the place of the symbolical rite was broken up. No blood or bullocks or of lambs is needed now, for Jesus has entered within the veil with his own blood. Hence, access to God is now permitted and is the privilege of every believer in Christ Jesus. There is no small space laid open through which we may peer at the mercy seat, but the rent reaches from the top to the bottom. We may come with boldness to the throne of the heavenly grace. Shall we err if we say that the opening of the holy of holies in this marvellous manner by our Lord's expiring cry was the type of the opening of the gates of paradise to all the saints by virtue of the passion? Our bleeding Lord hath the key of heaven. He openeth and no man shutteth. Let us enter in with him into the heavenly places and sit with him there till our common enemies shall be made his footstool. chapter 8 verse 34 he who was once despised and rejected of men now occupies the honorable position of a beloved and honored son the right hand of god is the place of majesty and favor our lord jesus is his people's representative when he died for them they had rest he rose again for them they had liberty when he sat down at his father's right hand, they had favor and honor and dignity. 
The raising and elevation of Christ is the elevation, the acceptance and enshrinement, the glorifying of all his people, for he is their head and representative. This sitting at the right hand of God, then, is to be viewed as the acceptance of the person of the surety, the reception of the representative, and therefore the acceptance of our souls. O saint, see in this thy sure freedom from condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? Who shall condemn the men who are in Jesus at the right hand of God? The right hand is the place of power. Christ at the right hand of God hath all power in heaven and in earth. Who shall fight against the people who have such power vested in their captain? O my soul, what can destroy thee if omnipotence be thy helper? If the agis of the Almighty cover thee, what sword can smite thee? Rest thou secure. If Jesus is thine all-prevailing King, and hath trodden thine enemies beneath his feet, if sin, death, and hell are all vanquished by him, and thou art represented in him, by no possibility canst thou be destroyed. Jesus' tremendous name puts all our foes to flight. Jesus, the meek, the angry lamb, a lion is in fight. By all hell's host withstood, we all hell's host o'erthrow, and conquering them through Jesus' blood, we still to conquer go. Him hath God exalted. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus our Lord, once crucified, dead, and buried, now sits upon the throne of glory. The highest place that heaven affords is His by undisputed right. It is sweet to remember that the exaltation of Christ in heaven is a representative exaltation. He is exalted at the Father's right hand, and though as Jehovah he has eminent glories, in which finite creatures cannot share, yet as the Mediator, the honors which Jesus wears in heaven are the heritage of all the saints. It is delightful to reflect how close is Christ's union with his people. We are actually one with him. We are members of his body, and his exaltation is our exaltation. He will give us to sit upon his throne even as he has overcome and is set down with his Father on his throne. He has a crown, and he gives us crowns too. He has a throne, but he's not content with having a throne to himself. On his right hand there must be his queen, arrayed in gold of Ophir. He cannot be glorified without his bride. Look up, believer, to Jesus now. 
Let the eye of your faith behold him with many crowns upon his head. And remember that you will one day be like him when you shall see him as he is. You shall not be so great as he is. You shall not be so divine. But still you shall, in a measure, share the same honors and enjoy the same happiness and the same dignity which he possesses. Be content to live unknown for a little while and to walk your weary way through the fields of poverty or up the hills of affliction. For by and by you shall reign with Christ. For he has made us kings and priests unto God, and we shall reign forever and ever. Oh, wonderful thought for the children of God. We have Christ for our glorious representative in heaven's court now, and soon he will come and receive us to himself, to be with him there, to behold his glory and to share his joy. Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20. The whole system of Christianity rests upon the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. For if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain, ye are yet in your sins. The divinity of Christ finds its surest proof in his resurrection, since he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It would not be unreasonable to doubt his deity if he had not risen. Moreover, Christ's sovereignty depends upon his resurrection. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Again, our justification, that choice blessing of the covenant, is linked with Christ's triumphant victory over death and the grave. For he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Nay, more, our very regeneration is connected with his resurrection. For we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And most certainly our ultimate resurrection rests here. For if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead 
shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. If Christ be not risen, then shall we not rise. But if he be risen, then they who are asleep in Christ have not perished, but in their flesh shall surely behold their God. Thus the silver thread of resurrection runs through all the believer's blessings, from his regeneration onwards to his eternal glory, and binds them together. How important, then, will this glorious fact be in his estimation, and how will he rejoice that beyond a doubt it is established that now is Christ risen from the dead. The promise is fulfilled. Redemption's work is done. Justice with mercies reconciled. For God has raised his Son. Oh 
and Joanna Dooley singing a song written and produced by her dad, Michael Dooley, helps us wind up this year's Nightlight Easter special. Lots more classic and modern devotional readings at my website. That's www.chrisglynn.com. And there you can find Easter specials from previous years if you'd like to go in and take a listen. Well, we pray that you'll have a very happy and meaningful Easter. Bye for now, and God bless. Thank you.